Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with Temple Stewart. She is a registered dietitian specializing in low-carb dieting for women's weight loss. I've had the opportunity to speak on several stages with her in the last year. She's absolutely delightful. We dove deep into her background and her history of PCOS and Hashimoto's that she was able to reverse with adopting a low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet. We discussed food psychology, woke nutrition, whether or not if it fits your macros is a good philosophy, the issues surrounding traditional allopathic models of nutrition, challenges related to nutrition research, weight loss resistance, plateau busters, and five different ways to measure success other than the scale. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Welcome Temple. I've been so excited to connect with you. Yeah, I'm so honored to be here. Thank you. I've listened to your podcast, so it really is a delight to be able to be on it. Yeah. And so we actually met in Las Vegas last year at the keto event, and then our paths crossed again in Austin and then again in New York City. So I feel really fortunate to have interacted with you in three different locations at three different events. And I'd love for you to share with listeners a bit about your background. So for everyone that's listening, you are a registered dietitian, but you're also in naturopathic school. So you've, you've now relocated to another part of the country. And I love your story. You really have a pain to purpose story, you know, how you yourself, you know, healed your body with nutrition along that journey with a couple different, you know, little bumps along the way, you know, things that kind of got you focused on looking at nutrition as medicine. Yeah, you know, it's been quite the journey, but I feel really honored to have walked it because I think it really helps me when I'm, you know, having clients with real life problems. And I can say I've been there. I understand what that feels like. It all really started probably my second year as a student dietitian. I, you know, was following all the guidelines and, and to become a registered dietitian, we're obviously taught the conventional dietary approach, lots of whole grains, limited red meats, you know, the typical stuff that we all know. And so I was following that and I was just getting sicker and sicker and bigger and bigger. And I was having more and more hormonal issues. And I was just so like, I was so baffled because I'm doing what I'm being taught yet. I'm having like all these issues and I really can't solve it. And that's when I started jumping around diet trains, try veganism a little bit, tried all these things that ultimately led to a PCOS diagnosis when I got down to the root of it. And I was told nothing about my diet. I was literally handed metformin, spironolactone and birth control and told to move along and to let me know, let this OBGYN know when I was ready to get pregnant, he would send me to a fertility clinic. And, you know, I was 21 at the time, maybe 22 at the time. And I'm thinking I've been healthy my whole life. I'm a division one soccer player, like all these things, this can't be happening to me. And I'm not going to take this as an answer. And so that's really ultimately when I started to do the deep dive into what can I do to heal my body naturally? I started reading books while we get sick by Dr. Bickman, the obesity code by Dr. Fung. And 
I, it, it completely transformed my life. And it also transformed the way I was acting as a dietitian because I wasn't seeing results with my veterans either and my patients either. And so, you know, it was a huge journey, but ultimately I'm thankful for the PCOS diagnosis because I don't think I would have ever found low carb keto without it. Yeah. And it's really interesting. We've had Dr. Felice Gersh most recently here talking about PCOS and her book PCOS SOS is I think truly the best book written talking about PCOS and really looking at is stemming from inflammation and oxidative stress and insulin resistance. And this is the piece that I think so many clinicians are missing with these young women. I myself didn't realize I had PCOS until I tried to get pregnant And I remember my GYN who was on top of things, you know, clearly we were charting and she could see that I had this luteal phase defect. So not enough progesterone. And she said, I bet you have PCOS. And so the kind of conventional way of dealing with PCOS prior to conception is contraception, you know, oral contraceptives, the pill, and then still not fixing the root cause. And then you go on to take, or at least I did, I took Clomid and did IUI to get pregnant and still didn't realize that insulin resistance, even though I was thin, they missed these diagnoses in women, and it really sets them up for a constellation of long-term problems. And it's my understanding that you also were diagnosed with Hashimoto's and how many young women and middle-aged women for that matter have Hashimoto's and you were able to successfully reverse that, put it into remission with diet alone, which I think is incredibly encouraging. Yeah, I was, I would, they were kind of back to back and I forget that one because I, I reversed that one kind of first. So, but yeah, it was PCOS. And then some of the symptoms I was still struggling with the, with the fatigue, my hair was falling, just, you know, the, all the typical thyroid stuff. And again, kind of the same thing of like, you're going to just need to go on armor levothyroxine and there's no dietary patterns that can fix this. And at that point I had already basically reversed PCOS. And so I was kind of like, you know what, I've done this once, I'm going to do it again and started doing the research with that too. And, you know, within a few months, my antibodies were down below nine, which is where they should have been. And I was feeling fantastic and better than I had felt in years. And I just, that's when I really got not frustrated, but I was just like, how many other women are out there who spend years and years and years and years suffering, not living their best life because they don't know that they can take control of this and really fix it on their own. And I'm not saying conventional medicine isn't helpful or medication isn't, but it it absolutely is. And it has a place, but ultimately nutrition, lifestyle, some of these things are more powerful in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And what do you find in your given patients right now? What do you find in terms of inflammatory foods, foods that will provoke inflammation with their thyroid gland? I have a couple that I usually recommend women stay away from in particular, but I'm curious to know if they're the same that you see. Yeah, definitely gluten would be like top number one and some of the cross reactives for gluten. And so a lot of women just have no idea that that can be so damaging for any autoimmune really. And so that's usually the first thing I'll say, look, if you're going keto anyway, it's pretty easy to get rid of this one um, or low carb. And so that's one of the first ones. Sometimes I see my women have some issues with dairy as well. And of course your typical seed oils and the more and more that keto has gotten popular. We know that these seed oils are in all these keto products. So a lot of times it's just adjusting 
diet in terms of, okay, yeah, you're following keto, but you're still eating a lot of these inflammatory seed oils through these keto fake foods. And so that's a really helpful one for them to switch off as well. But I would say gluten, dairy, and then the seed oils tend to be like my top three. And then really with Hashimoto's, as you know, it's very helpful to get rid of a lot of the toxins, stop drinking tap water. We could probably go on and on about some of the more quote unquote crunchy things to do to help that. But I just see a huge improvement with just gluten alone half the time. Yeah. And it's interesting how gluten is snuck into our diet so innocuously. And that's why I think it's important to read those food labels, ask questions, because we probably, even if we are excluding gluten from our diet, we get passive exposure in restaurants or eating at friends' houses. And so I've gotten to the point now where I just tell people I have, if I go to a restaurant, I just say I have an allergy and then they take it a little more seriously. Yeah, a hundred percent. I do the exact same thing. And a lot of, it really is the passing on the plates, the passing on the grill, everything you can be exposed in, especially when you're not in control of the cooking, et cetera. Absolutely. And so let's pivot a little bit and talk about food psychology, because I know in your work and certainly in my work that the psychology around food is incredibly impactful. And so when we're looking at our relationships with food and how we perceive food to be. Some people look at food as fuel. Some people look at food as comfort. When you're working with your, you're probably, I'm sure that we probably share very similar populations that we work with, but some of the food rules that people grow up with or dietary, you know, constraints or their food relationships, how does that play into your work? Oh, I mean, it's a huge portion. I feel like it's very difficult. Diet may be the single-handedly most difficult thing to change in a lot of people because it truly is, it's ingrained into the, the culture, the way that they were raised. It, people have happy memories and sad memories and it, it all can come back to food and food behaviors. And so, yes, it's absolutely something we can address. And it's one of those things that there isn't like a blanket way to address everyone all the same, right? We always have to look at the individual. What have they gone through? What were they raised like? What culture were they in? Have they experienced childhood trauma around food? Did something happen to them that causes them to use it for comfort? So it really is, it's like a, it's like a very investigative process of figuring out each individual's kind of main driver of what their food behaviors. And I really encourage my clients to either get help with this. There's some great like food therapists and people that really like specialize in this that can really dig deep, but also just telling my clients, look, look back on your life. Where did this problem arise? What happened to you? Did you experience any trauma? Where do you think this started to become an issue and then treat it at its root cause, right? Because there's tons of strategies of like hack this and a tip for this. And that's all great. But until you really address some of the root issues, whether that's low self-esteem, low confidence, all of it, you know, it's important to fix that first, especially if you want long-term results. Yeah. And I think it's really important for people to just be honest with themselves and fully transparent. I find when I'm really digging in deep with clients and patients, when they start sharing about how they were rewarded with food growing up or you know, maybe they didn't have the support system they needed from their parents or their loved ones. And so food was something they could do in secrecy and private that made them feel good. You know, they, I've had women describe, you know, carbohydrate dense foods as feeling like they've had a hug. Yeah. And so, you know, that serotonin boost, at least temporarily. So really understanding that, you know, working with practitioners that are going to take the time to get a good history that are really going to talk to you about your relationship with food, I think is a really important first step. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and it oftentimes is really eye-opening for clients too, because they've struggled with this problem, but haven't really thought about why. And so, yeah, I think that that's the first step in, in creating a long-term success in a client. What are your thoughts on woke nutrition? Things oh. like if it fits your macros. Yeah. You know, as a dietitian, I feel like I get trolled a lot on this about an Instagram and TikTok and stuff, because I don't believe in it. I think it can be really damaging. I think things like if it fits your macros for especially a diseased individual that may be struggling with Hashimoto's or diabetes or anything, I think it can be a total disaster. And same thing with like the movement that's going around that like you can be healthy in every size. Yeah, you can. There's a chance that you are healthy, but to say that to everyone, there's going to be a significantly more majority that's not healthy at every size. And so, yeah, this woke, there's several different kind of dietary methods in this woke nutrition platform right now that I think are really creating a disaster. And a lot of the times I'll get clients that have tried them and have gained, you know, 30, 40, 50 pounds, their A1Cs have gone up three points. And it's just like, whoa, we need to be able to be honest enough with people that yes, it might be uncomfortable, but I think we can do it in a loving way where we we tell them the truth in efforts to help them not to hurt their feelings or, or be disrespectful. To me, not being open and honest with someone is the least loving thing you can do, right? Especially about their risk, their health risk and all of that. And so as a dietitian, I feel a little bit like I'm the black sheep of the family when it comes to this, because I don't buy into it. I don't promote it. And that's where a lot of nutrition and dietetics has moved is don't ever make anyone uncomfortable. It's okay to have everything in moderation. Sugar isn't, you know, going to cause that much problems. And it's just not true. And ultimately, I think it harms people in the long run. No, I think it's such a good point. And it's interesting. There's one individual who I will not call out on Instagram, who every Saturday buys a big thing of donuts. And this individual says, you know, this is my higher carb day and I'm going to eat all these donuts. And that's fine because this individual is metabolically flexible, but the people that are watching these stories and watching this, you know, if it fits your macros, I think it's destructive. And it's not to suggest that you don't have a higher carbohydrate day. If you're carbohydrate cycling, but you're going to get more from a whole foods source carbohydrate than you are from this highly processed, hyper palatable seed laden, you know, sugar bomb. And the other piece that I think is important, and I say this often is if you can't moderate, then you eliminate. And, you know, there are people like I can eat a piece of dark chocolate. I cannot just eat a cookie or a piece of cake. Like my brain, when it gets that flour, even if it's a gluten-free flour product, my brain goes more, I want more, I want more. And so it's much easier for me just to not have those things in my home. Of course, around the holidays, I will have a piece of pie. I will have a piece of cake. I will get rid of them (laughs) afterwards. But I think it's important for people to understand that that whole concept of if it fits your macros, I think is particularly destructive, you know, being healthy at every size. I agree with you being respectful and direct and honest and forthright with our patients and clients is so critically important. And then really understanding that, you know, finding an alternative, like I had Mark Kukazella on this past week and he's so funny. He was saying, get 90% dark chocolate. And I can guarantee you it's so rich. You can't eat more than like one square. And so really understanding like the less sugar that's in something, the less addictive, the less dopaminergic, the less dopamine pleasure seeking behavior will come out of that. And I think that's important to make that distinction. 
A hundred percent agree. And I love that you mentioned like the moderator versus abstainer aspect, because it is true. A lot of people don't know what they are. They don't know if they're a moderator or abstainer, but they, you know, they're really abstainers, but they keep falling into that binge cycle. And it's like, well, this is why is because you don't do well with these foods as an abstainer. So I think that it's a huge concept that's good for people to understand as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so you and I are the byproduct of the traditional allopathic medical model. And we both openly talk about the fact there's a lot of good things that our traditional model does. We are superlative with emergencies. We are superlative with surgeries. We don't do such a good job with prevention and chronic disease management. And so what do you think are some of the big issues with the traditional allopathic nutrition model. And and for everyone that's listening, understanding that registered dietitians really are at the crux of being the like nutrition pros, like within that model. I know when I was rounding on patients and I'd call for a nutrition consult with the RDs in the hospital, some of whom were aligned with us. And then many of whom were not, and we can talk about my registered dietitian that suggested my patients eat six bananas a day. And I was like, no, no, no. (laughs) Well, I think, yeah, this is a huge topic. I think one of the biggest issues is just time itself. The way that conventional medicine has moved is we can't really expect a lot of these doctors and nurse practitioners and all these people to be able to do preventative care. Like you said, they just don't have time. The sheer amount of patients that they're being forced to see for payouts and all of that is just, I mean, they can barely fit in two words, right? And so to expect them to do preventative care and treat the problem at hand, I think is a lot of pressure. And I do believe that there are great doctors and nurse practitioners and dietitians out there. They just simply don't have enough time and, or the patient themselves are just not interested in it. Like, you know, they're in the hospital for some reason, they may may or may not have taken care of their health and they may or may not be interested in preventative care. So I think there's a huge time money issue there as well. And I completely agree. Conventional medicine has saved my daughter's life. It's fantastic for emergency medicine, but I think we need to open our eyes and be a little bit more open-minded about preventative care and understanding that there's a lot of tools at hand. There's people like you and I, there's so many great professionals. And I think conventional medicine needs kind of a come to Jesus meeting of like, let's use these people. We don't need to feel the pressure of preventative medicine. Let's send them out. Let's start reimbursing these professionals that care about preventative care. You know, I think it starts much deeper than probably what I'm scratching the surface of, but, and then ultimately too, I think there's a lot of responsibility that comes down to the patient themselves. I don't think that it's a medical professional's job to create motivation and to change people's lives that don't necessarily want it. So I think it starts ultimately with the patient themselves of Where's your motivation and give them the proper education. And then ultimately they're the ones who are going to put the practice into the lifestyle. So yeah, I could go on about conventional medicine probably more than you'd like, but you know, I think ultimately the more that we prop up conventional medicine and help people understand that you don't have to live this way. Diabetes is reversible. PCOS is reversible. And then getting those patients to the providers that can help them is a huge piece. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, working in cardiology for 16 years, we had patients who were on 50 plus medications between cardiology and all the other specialties that they saw. 
And to me, it was always disheartening when I had to add more antihypertensives for blood pressure, had yeah. to, you know, increase someone's insulin in the hospital, had to, you know, add more medications for their dyslipidemia or their lipid disorders. And I used to always try to get the conversation back to, we really could work on lifestyle. And more often than not, my patients would say, Cynthia, I'm not going to stop smoking. I'm not going to exercise. I'm not going to change my diet. So just give me the prescription. And I would always kind of be like, okay, that this is the patient's choice. I'm trying to educate them, but I agree with you wholeheartedly that it really has to stem from the patient intrinsically wanting to make changes so that we can help facilitate that process. And as I was preparing for this podcast today, I wanted to just share with listeners some statistics that I was looking at. We are the 35th healthiest country in the world. We are ranked 46 in the world for life expectancy and the net impact of special interests and lobbyists on the USDA and health and human services is undeniable. And Robert Lustig had a really interesting quote. If anyone knows Robert, we've, I've actually had a podcast with him. He's this prolific pediatric endocrinologist who uh, has kind of moved away from it being in a teaching environment, but wrote an amazing book called Metabolical. He said, tasking the government agencies, tasking the government agencies that manage America's food production with crafting nutrition policy is akin to a fox in charge of the hen house. And so really understanding that in, in many ways, this is a top-down issue. It is not just a clinician issue, patient provider issue. It really stems from a government regulation issue, government policy, which in many ways reinforces some of the nutritional guidelines and recommendations that you and I are not aligned with in many ways. You know, they're very deficient in protein. They're very oversaturated in carbohydrates. They incorporate a lot of these but seed oils, which are bastardized, the wrong types of fats. Yeah. And so on a lot of levels, when I look at information like that, I find it so disheartening because even good people are trying to work within a system that is really designed to make it harder for us to practice in a way that encourages our patients to really lean into lifestyle as medicine, as opposed to you know the sick care model that we're really stuck in. I could not agree more. I think absolutely it starts from the top down. And, and you know, as a student dietitian, and I, I don't want to say the group, but my first like large dietetics conference that I ever went to, I was my first year as a dietitian and I walked in and the Coca-Cola was there. Kellogg's was there. Abbott Nutrition was there. All of these different companies that I know were just trash food, like not helping anyone's health were huge expos at this certain, you know, conference. And I was appalled. I was thinking I'm at the leading dietetics conference in the country and Coca-Cola shows up. I couldn't make sense of it. And at the time I, you know, I was still dabbling in this and I wasn't a mature dietitian. And I was like, this just, that's when I knew, I knew that there was something more to this to follow the money. There's got to be something going on. And you know, I think you're hundred percent right. I think there's a lot of responsibility on the higher ups that they're just not being accountable for. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And certainly probably not in my lifetime, is this all going to be solved? Yeah. But my hope and intention is that we are creating greater awareness that consumers will start demanding more for their health, not just, you know, in their food supply, in the food supply overall, but demanding more in terms of healthcare yeah. And so I think many of these things are confounded by poor quality nutrition research. And I know I was 
listening to you on another podcast and you were talking about some of the issues with nutrition research overall. So maybe that's a good place to kind of pivot a bit because I would be remiss if we didn't address this. I mean, almost every day, I'm sure you are getting DMs about it. I'm getting DMs about, you know, epidemiologic research or research that's really not great quality and people trying to draw conclusions from that. Well, yeah. And I I saw you post on your Instagram about that newest intermittent fasting article that came out that was just a hot mess, but you're right. It's very challenging to do nutrition research. One, because people just don't remember a lot of nutrition research is done off of uh, food journals or how, you know, how many times a week did you eat red meat and you fill in a little bubble? Well, nobody remembers barely what they ate for breakfast, much less what they've eaten seven days ago. And so that's one of the issues. A lot of times nutrients aren't pulled apart separately and studied they're studied in combinations and so red meat gets demonized but nobody asked what they had with the red meat you know they had fries and a beer and so it's these types of implications that cause a lot of problems because there's no real way to can keep it super controlled especially because people one probably aren't willing to even do it because it's not going to be pleasant for them and people aren't willing to give up their habits so a lot of nutrition research on that just erroneous on the way that they gather their data. The other thing is a lot of it's sponsored, just kind of going back to what we just talked about. It's sponsored by these big corporations, Coca-Cola, Kellogg's, and you can make a study bias very easily. You can pay enough money to make them come out with the outcome that you would want. And so that you see that quite a bit too. And so I do encourage my clients, look, they send me research all the time then I easily scroll down and see, oh, well, this is funded by, you know, these big brands. Of course, it's going to come out with whole grains are the best thing you can do for your body. So those are kind of my two biggest challenges to nutrition research. And there's virtually no money spent on it. If you look at what's spent on pharmaceuticals, it is not even close. Nutrition research, there's barely a drop in the bucket money-wise. And there's really no motivation for for them to spend money, right? Because they don't want, I don't want to say they don't want, but sick people aren't profitable. They, I'm sorry, sick people are profitable. And so to heal them with nutrition isn't very motivating. And so I think that's some of the problems with nutrition research. And yeah, it's messy when you get to start studying food and people's habits. Well, and I think it's hard because most adults, at least it's been my experience years ago when I worked at a research hospital, people get uncomfortable sharing what they're eating. So they share with you what they think you want them to be eating as opposed to the fact that they're really eating foods that are not ideal for them. So there's some degree of lack of transparency. And the other thing is people don't want to live in a controlled environment for the duration of a research study because they want to go back to their homes. They, you know, they're unlike you know lab animals that are in cages and in a controlled yeah. environment. Humans don't want to have that source of you know conflict or containment or just feeling like they don't have the ability to live their lives as they choose to. And I think that's probably a greater issue is people perceive it to be really inconveniencing and therefore it's more challenging to do the research on top of everything else you just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's yeah. I personally wouldn't even want to live in a controlled environment. So I get it. No, absolutely not. So one of the biggest issues that I see, and obviously the bulk of my patients and people that I work with are in perimenopause, the 10 to 15 years preceding menopause through menopause, And so weight loss resistance is a huge issue. As I know, you know, how do we address weight loss? Like as kind of a broad concept, how do we make it sustainable? Because this is such a big focus. People truly believe they should be the same weight they were at 18, even though they don't, their body is not 
functioning the way it did at 18. They're not as active. You know, they've got all these other pressures and stressors and hormonal fluctuations. So when women come to you in particular with weight loss resistance and a desire to lose weight, what's a, a good starting point for you? Well, the first starting point with me is making sure that they're working with a provider that can help them sort their hormonal issues if they're there. I hate to see women in perimenopause and menopause suffer through it. I haven't reached that stage in my life, but I know enough to not let people suffer if their hormones are really wacky. And so I love having people I can refer out to of like, you know, look at bioidenticals, look at these things that could be helpful. You don't have to suffer. And, you know, there's supplements and all that as well. But I think number one is setting realistic goals. Like you just said, the whole, I want to look like I did when I was a senior in high school. I think being open and upfront as a practitioner and talking about, well, you do realize that that would take extremely high amounts of restriction and extremely high amounts of time in the gym and all of these things and really laying it out there in a truthful manner of like, let's set some goals where that would make you happy, where you would feel good and that's healthy. But also understand if you really truly want to get down to that weight, it's going to be challenging. It may not be healthy. It may not be super realistic. And so I like to be honest about weight loss goals. And in general, because of diet culture, people have very, very odd weight loss. I shouldn't say odd, but unrealistic weight loss goals. They expect to lose, you know, 10, 15 pounds in a week. They think they're going to lose a hundred pounds in two months. And it's like, no, 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 no. Just because you saw that on the cover of a magazine doesn't mean it's healthy and or realistic at all. And so I, for me, first step with those types of clients is understanding and explaining to them that they're in a challenging second puberty of their life and things are really a little bit challenging hormonally. And then number two is just helping them set realistic goals that they are comfortable with, feel good about, and that we can actually maintain and achieve. I think that's really important. And it's interesting. I used to, and I still say one to two pounds a week is really the max. I mean, that is sustainable. If you lose five to 10 pounds in a week, that's not sustainable. And interestingly enough, when I was going through the book launch, there was a major publication that will remain unnamed. And because I didn't have like specs of lose 20 pounds in two weeks or lose 50 pounds in a month, they were not interested in featuring the book, talking to me, et cetera. They only wanted these big double digit numbers and it had to be in a short span of time. And I kept saying to my PR person, like, that's not realistic. That's not sustainable. Like that would be a problem. Like it would be unethical for me to say that this program is going to do that because that's not sustainable weight loss in any way. And one of the things I find with a lot of women in general is we know the RDAs are woefully inadequate. So recommended daily allowances on macros. So protein, fat, and carbs are woefully inadequate and largely skewed to, this is my opinion, too many carbs, too little protein and the wrong types of fats. Has that been, I would imagine that's been your experience as well, that you kind of, when you're looking at a diet recall or looking at a food diary, you're scratching your head and you're like too many carbs, too many carbs, not enough protein, too many seed oils, all these things that are contributing to this weight loss resistance piece. Oh, hundred percent. I even tell my clients, don't look at the percentages. Like that's all based off a 2000 calorie diet. Don't look at it because you're at a different spot. And that's very confusing for people when they see that percentage and they're doing that math in their head or, and they're thinking, you know, so yeah, it is. The RDAs are, are, are a mess and old, old, old and need to be revamped. And so, yeah, I just tell my clients just to ignore it altogether. Do you have a particular food tracker that you like to use? 
So chronometer is probably my like number one. If some of my clients do find it a little confusing in terms of some of the numbers and what it, it, cause it does give you extremely high amounts of information. I'll go to something like lose it or card manager, my fitness pal. And yeah, I find the best ones is just let them try it out and figure out which one they find most user-friendly. I love chronometer when I'm using it with clients, just because it is, it's a wealth of information in terms of a lot of that stuff. That's actually my favorite because it gives macros and micros. And if you're a data nerd, like I am, and I would imagine you are as well, I like more data rather than less, but I have clients that it's overwhelming to have so much information. And so really kind of figuring out for them what works best. Now, I know in your background, you worked at the VA, which I had the honor of working with VA patients when I was in Baltimore as well. And you started to notice that when you restricted their carbohydrate intake, you were getting results that medications alone were not getting. So let's talk a little bit about carbohydrate restriction or reduction and what that does for us metabolically. Yeah, I was, you know, I was kind of going through that whole journey with my PCOS when I started implementing the low carb, lower carb, ketogenic, strategic carb, whatever you want to call it, dietary lifestyle with my veterans. And we know the veteran population has some of the worst metabolic health on in the country and due to a lot of factors, but I was so disheartened as a dietitian because I was giving them the regular guidelines that I had learned and just nothing was happening. Oftentimes their A1C would go up when they would eat more whole grains. Imagine that, right? And so I started using strategic carbohydrate restriction and I can remember I specifically floated as a dietitian in the diabetes clinic often often. And there was a a dietitian that worked there and she would always tell me temple diabetes isn't reversible. You need to stop telling clients that you need to stop telling clients that they're never going to reverse their diabetes. And to me, the definition of reversing is just putting it, you know, going back in a disease where you're getting off medications, your lab values are looking better. And I'm thinking, no, it absolutely is reversible. And it's really not even, it's hard to reverse, but a lot of times people can get off completely off everything. And so I started implementing it and I was shocked. And the doctors that the endocrinologists and everyone that was working with some of the same clients, you know, who's that dietitian? Who's these, all my clients are getting off their insulin. And I was getting more and more referrals. So many that I couldn't handle because all of these clients were telling their friends, go see the dietitian, in the diabetes clinic, go see her here because they're getting off all this insulin and all this medication that was just making them a hot mess and oftentimes more metabolically unhealthy. And so I found that that was really fun. I use Verta Health a lot too. Verta Health really promoted or really got gave me a good understanding of keto because they did a pilot study in the hospital that I worked at at the time. And so it was just amazing to be able to see, you know, a 70-year-old veteran improve his metabolic health tremendously after having diabetes for 40 years. And so there's hope. And I think a lot of them are missing that and no one had ever told them, Hey, you can get off metformin. I don't know why you think you have to be on that forever, you know? And that was some of the best moments of my career, just because I loved seeing how happy and how healthy these veterans could get after losing a lot of hope. Yeah, that's incredible. And for anyone that's listening, type two diabetes is lifestyle mediated, meaning it's the choices we make in our lifestyle that contribute to insulin resistance and ultimately diabetes. And I would imagine that was just incredibly rewarding. So out of curiosity, what was your threshold for carbohydrate intake while they were in the hospital when you were monitoring them? 
It, well, I had to be very careful with this because not everyone was on the same page. And I'm here, I am a lowly dietitian, like you need to reduce the carbohydrate. But one thing that I found very challenging, so my threshold, ultimately, I would start lower, like we would do 75 ish, and then we would go down based on that. The hospital that I was at treated with sliding scale. So it allowed for me to have some of that power. But I'll tell you, and you probably already know this, one of the problems with dietitian or working as a dietitian in the hospital is the cafeteria controls the food. And so I'm over here writing, do not put one slice of white bread on the thing. Stop giving low fat 1% milk, you know, and the carb controlled plates, half my battle was getting to the kitchen before the patient would get the food and getting the carbs off of it because it was loaded with carbohydrates, even on a carb controlled diet. And so that's another problem. You know, they were given, you know, way, way, way too high 35 grams per meal usually are higher than that 45 up to 65. And so half my battle was just trying to make it to the kitchen before my veterans got the food. And so, but yeah, I would say I started around, you know, 55, 60, and then would just lower it until we could get the medication down or, or until they felt comfortable. That's amazing. And thank you for your, you know, revolutionary work because how many people, clinicians kind of go through the motions every day they're at work. They're just not really thinking. And, and sometimes I would cringe here. I am seeing cardiac patients and I'm looking at their heart healthy diet. And I'm like, dang, there's a lot of carbohydrate on there. Yeah. And for anyone that's listening, the average American consumes 200 to 300 grams of carbs a day. That's average. Yep. And it's important to understand, you know, I listened to Dr. Gabrielle Lyons lecture at KetoCon. I'm sure you did as well. And she was talking about for her threshold is 30 grams of carbs in a meal period total. Yeah. And so really understanding that if we're giving our patients 60, 90, 100 grams of carbs, and they're in a bed, more than likely, maybe they're getting up with assistance, or maybe they're sitting in a chair all day long. They're not in a position where they're using up that carbohydrate load. So, you know, you're wondering why, oh, we'll just cover it with insulin. You know, the sliding scale for anyone that's not familiar with that, it's, you know, you get a range and amount of insulin that you provide depending on what their blood sugar is. And, you know, for a lot of diabetics, they just say, Oh, we'll just cover it with more insulin. Well, we don't want that. We actually want the insulin needs, exogenous insulin needs to go down and to be in a position where this can be controlled with lifestyle and diet. You know, it's interesting when I was in the hospital three years ago, out of the 13 days, I wasn't allowed to eat until I think day 11 or maybe 12. And I had to beg the cafeteria to send me, I think I asked for bone broth or chicken broth. I got that. And then I remember they were very kind to me. I said, can you just give me just cut up chicken? I just want some meat. I don't want anything else. They kept saying, you sure you don't want some starch? I'm like, nope. But they accommodated me, but probably only because my surgeon fought so hard for me to be able to eat the things that she knew that were going to nourish my body. But the average person in a hospital is getting such an enormous sugar and carbohydrate load. It's anything there. There's very little nutritious food in most conventional hospitals right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, juice, we would give juice, chocolate milk and sure, which is like one of the worst things you could ever drink. I mean, it's cornstarch, palm oil, and water essentially. And we're giving that as a nutritional shake, which was, I just, you know, it's, it's bad. And then a lot of times too, not just on the hospital itself, but you're working with these cardiac and diabetic patients and then they're Uber eating, you know, pizzas and McDonald's. And so you're battling that as well. So yeah, it is, 
hospital food leaves a lot to be desired um, for sure. Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting. I want to make sure I share my banana story. So I had a patient diabetic cardiovascular disease. I think he was a vasculopath. He had diffuse vascular disease. Very nice man was clueless about carbohydrate counting. And so I referred him to the diabetes educator came back to me. He was delighted. He said, it was fantastic. I met with her. So tell me what you guys talked about. He said, she's okay with me eating. He said, a banana. And I said, okay, well, how often are you eating a banana? He's like, oh, about six times a day. And I said, what? So I said, every banana is 30 to 40 grams of carbohydrate and you're already not able to handle sugar properly in your body. And so I remember it was this teachable moment trying to explain to him, like, if you desire to have a piece of fruit, have a little bit of blueberry or a little bit of raspberry. And by that, I mean like a quarter cup and not every day. And it, you know, facilitated a very interesting conversation with the dietitian to kind of let her know, like, you might've said eat a banana, but I think he heard as often as I want and trying to explain to him, if you've already got diabetes, fructose, yes, a little bit of fiber with that fruit, et cetera, but it is not benefiting your blood sugars in any way, shape or form. No, no, absolutely. And that comes down to understanding your patients, understanding where they are knowledge wise, meeting them where they are and helping them through that. Because yeah, that could have turned into a disaster really quick, you know, and no telling what else he could have been confused about. So good for you for catching that one. No, I just remember saying, how many bananas are you eating a day? And he's like, six. And I was like, okay, we got a problem here. (laughs) So helpful. Yes. I know you have a, you're a proponent of keto and low carb diets. I'm curious, do you use therapeutic carnivore? Do you find that that can be helpful? I know that for me, I was full carnivore for nine months after being hospitalized because my body tolerated zero fiber. And I come to find that sometimes doing a little bit of a carnivore reset, even if it's temporary, can be very, very helpful. I'm curious if you're using that therapeutically with your patients too. Yes, I do. I think it can be really, really helpful. I think it comes down to understanding the patient, what's going on with them. But yes, I've used carnivore more times than I can count. For me, it's not something that I don't, I think I would do like till the end of my days. But I think if you're eating mostly animal-based products, even if you are quote unquote keto, I think that that's the best way to go. That's the most stable my blood sugars have been. Mood, sleep, the whole nine yards is when I'm full carnivore. And so, yeah, I think it can be very, very helpful, especially when people are maybe making this switch to getting into ketosis, but don't necessarily grasp full keto yet. I think it's a pretty easy way to just say, Hey, look, just make most of your meals meet and and you'll get into ketosis. And so, yeah, I think carnivore is super healthy. And I think there's some very interesting stuff in regards to plants and anti-nutrients. And I think we're kind of just scratching the surface with a lot of that, just given that there's very limited research and I do think though, it's, there's no doubt it's helpful anecdotally and just seeing everything in my own life as well. So yeah, I'm a fan of carnivore for sure. Yeah. And it's interesting. I have, you know, even within girlfriends of mine, just suggesting maybe doing carnivore for a week, they're bloating, their digestive issues go away. So effortlessly and easily, you know, for me, I have been humbled at how plant anti-nutrients. So whether it's oxalates or saponins and you know, all these different plant-based compounds that if your gut health is pristine, you probably can tolerate eating them without issue. But I know for myself, I can tell when I've had too much oxalates, like I don't eat almonds anymore, but if I were to go to an event and maybe someone, I was sampling something that had almond flour in it, 
it's a very delicate balance. Like my gut will definitely let me know if I've consumed too much, but you know, people that are pushing kale and spinach and celery juice, they're not intrinsically bad foods. I'm not to demonize any of these things, but if you consume them and you get a GI upset and bloating and don't feel good, it could be that your body just doesn't tolerate these things. Or, you know, more often than not, I see a lot of women heading into perimenopause and menopause, you know, we're just coming out of this, you know, two and a half year pandemic plus, and everyone is at unprecedented amounts of stress and -hmm. certainly middle-aged women. I'm not picking on anyone. I'm just speaking the facts. We know that the bulk of our immune systems in our gut, we know that if we, you know, if we go through traumas and certainly there's been a lot of traumatic things that have happened over the last several years, it impacts the integrity of the lining of the small intestine. And if that's breached, makes you susceptible to leaking food particles into your bloodstream, which can drive inflammation and food sensitivities can also make you very susceptible to autoimmune disorders. And I'm speaking from personal experience. So when we're looking at these anti-nutrients and looking at, you know, how well our body is assimilating certain types of foods, I find keeping a food diary or just being food aware, you know, being able to make connections. I have to be careful with cruciferous vegetables. I love them like to a point that's probably a little bizarre. Like I love Brussels sprouts. I love cauliflower. I love um, cabbage, but again, it's that tipping point. Like my body will just like remind me gently. Okay. You're at the tipping point. If you continue to eat as much of this as you are, you're going to have some digestive issues for the next week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had, when my daughter was born, my, she's now two, but she was born, she had a chylothorax and it was just this trauma, the traumatizing event. She was in the NICU for a month and I was a hot mess as a new mom and you know, the baby, everything, it was just a mess. And I promptly got diagnosed with ulcerative colitis after that, because it was so traumatic. I was eating hospital food, all of these other things. And you're absolutely hundred percent right is and I love that you brought up the stress and traumatic events because oftentimes people separate that from food. It's like our health. They don't, they don't understand. And and I knew exactly what happened. I mean, I was, yeah, my daughter was just in the NICU for a month, nearly lost her life. My stomach is a mess. I'm a mess. And so that was one of the uses of carnivore. I went carnivore for a while and it has helped tremendously. But yeah, it's funny. People don't tend to be mindful about their body until something happens where they're forced to be mindful. So if I could say one thing, it's start listening to things like, like you're saying, Cynthia, the bloating, the gas, that stuff isn't normal. That's your body trying to tell you something's wrong or you're eating too much of this. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think the almond flour and the coconut flour is one of the issues as well, because a lot of keto foods are going that way. You know, oh, you can still have your donuts. You can still have your cake. And it's like, yeah, to some degree you can, you can, but you have to be careful uh, because it will backfire after a while. Yeah. And it's interesting because after going to a lot of keto and low carb events this year and last year, I've been able to, you know, look at packages and look at ingredients and, you know, politely decline samples of packages or foods that aren't aligned. You know, sucralose, as an example, is in a lot of uh, keto, low carb foods. And that is definitely something I try to avoid as much as possible. Thankfully, I'm, I'm also dairy sensitive. So I was able to politely decline said product that was offered to me. But in your experience, do you find that sometimes people transition from a standard American diet over to keto, paleo, low carb? I mean, gosh, there's even vegan junk food, but people kind of trade one for the other, assuming one is superior to the other, but in essence, it's still the same 
junk food? Oh, all the time, all the time. And marketing has gotten so good about being making people buy their product with these label fat free, this free, gluten free, this is all it's like, Yes. And so that is a conversation that I always have with any of the clients that are in my program is like, we're eating real food. We're eating whole foods. We're eating foods that, you know, you can read the ingredient list and pick out every single thing and you know exactly what it is. And yes. And I think ultimately that doesn't address a lot of the root causes, right. Of their actual eating behaviors is when you see that, when you see people go from soda to diet soda and it's like, okay, Yes, that's a step in the right direction, but ultimately we're going to get you the diet soda and, and sucralose and things like that. So my encouragement to my clients is, is we don't want to trade one for the other. We're making a whole lifestyle change and ultimately those things and those types of foods are going to cause problems too. And so I think being upfront and honest about that and helping them make the switch and helping them find alternatives that aren't going to cause problems is a lot of what I do, probably 80%, honestly. I bet. I bet. It's interesting. When I was at an event with Vinny Tortorich in August, and one of the most common questions by the audience that was asked was, what do you think of monk fruit? What do you think of stevia? What do you think of a thyrotol? What do you think of this? And he said, I'm going to just stop everyone and just say, it's still sugar. Like it may not be conventional sugar, but it is still sugar. And if you have a sugar addiction, it's not helping you, it's yes. hurting you. Yeah. And so that really stuck with me. And actually my, my husband was in the audience, so it stuck with him too. Yeah. Just understanding how complex that relationship is because sugar or sugar alcohols or sugar substitutes are proliferative. They're in all of our condiments. They're in a lot of our foods, things that you wouldn't necessarily think about. Like my husband was making fun of me, teasing me in a loving way, making fun of me because I wanted to buy this primal kitchen ketchup. And I was trying to explain to him, I said, well, there's no sugar in that, but the Heinz quote unquote organic, but yes, I know it's in a squeezy bottle, but we want to limit the exposure to plastics as much as we can does have sugar in it. And he was like, I don't know what the difference is. And I said, we want less sugar in our lives, not more. So if you do nothing else, just read food labels and just be aware of where the sugar is sneaking into your lifestyle. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's the more you read labels, the the more shocked and appalled my clients. I didn't know this had this in it. I didn't know ketchup or barbecue sauce or honey mustard. I had no idea all these things. And you're like, yeah, now imagine just eating a regular standard American diet, how quickly that adds up. It's rapid. It's rapid. You know, some people don't even make it till 9 a.m. before having 60, 70 grams of sugar. And so, yeah, absolutely. That's it. learning to read labels will save you money. It'll save your health. It'll, it's very, it's crucial. And learning all the, the, what is it? There's like 260 different names for sugar. And it's like, you know, this is my job as a dietitian to know this, but someone on the street, they're not going to know that, you know, what dextrose or maltodextrin and all these other names are. And so it's, yeah, it's good marketing on uh, food corporation sides, but it is the responsibility of the consumer to become educated and figure out like, what am I eating? What is this ingredient? What are all these different names? Absolutely. It really makes a big difference. And when we're talking about plateau busting and strategies like your more advanced strategies that you use with your, your patients, what are some of your favorite ways to break through plateaus? Because the questions that came in from most of my followers were about plateau busters and what's your philosophy about the scale. And so we'll get to that too. Yeah. Yeah. So first and foremost, I love fasting. I love 
different types of fasting. I love some extended fasting, short-term. I think fasting is one of the best ways to reset, get things going and break through a plateau. Secondly is resistance training. People don't understand that your metabolism isn't broken. You just need more lean muscle mass. And then ultimately hormones too. I think every female should, especially in kind of the demographic of the perimenopause menopause, don't take those lightly, have them checked. I'll have clients all the time that haven't had their hormones checked in 15 years and they're full on menopause. And it's like, go get that stuff looked at. So I use fasting a lot. I use resistance training a lot. Sometimes I'll do carb cycling if I think the client is appropriate and their insulin levels are low and I have that fasted insulin number and I know they're not inflamed, et cetera. So those are kind of my favorite ways. I'd be interested to hear your methods. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, those are all ones that I definitely embrace. And ironically enough, I didn't sleep great last night, but I made sure I got to the gym anyway to lift legs because I'd been in New York all weekend. And I was like, I need to lift weights to help with insulin sensitivity. I would definitely add, you know, especially because women in middle age are less stress resilient, managing stress proactively. Like this isn't five minutes of meditation once a week. It's really finding a practice that resonates with you. I do a lot of walking in nature. I have a PEMF mat in my house. I'm not suggesting everyone needs that, but it's probably one of my favorite things in the world. Um, High quality sleep because sleep in and of itself can be very important for balancing blood sugar, leptin and ghrelin. So appetite and satiety hormones. You know, I think about just something really simple, like walking after a meal. Like I really encourage people get out after lunch, walk for 10 or 15 minutes. You don't need anything special. Just set the time aside. Same thing with dinner. Maybe it's getting dark out at five o'clock in the evening and it feels really late at seven or eight o'clock at night, but walk down your street. You know, I actually have a a dog leash that has reflective tape on it so people can see us so that I don't have to worry about getting run over. Yeah. But I think, I also think about, you know, being very mindful about macros. Like this is a time I'll really encourage people to track you know, how much protein are you getting? Because if you get enough protein, you're not going to be hungry after you eat a meal. You know, I was in New York city this past weekend and I went to a restaurant where all of the meat unbeknownst to us was soaked in heavy cream. And so they got very creative and they ended up bringing me a massive burger to eat. And after eating said massive burger, I was like, oh my God, I'm so full. I'm so uncomfortable. And my husband's like, well, at least I know you're not going to have any interest in having any type of dessert. And I was like, absolutely not. So really getting that protein bolus in with your meals and just being aware of, you know, the interrelationship with alcohol. I think that, you know, this is a very personal decision. I myself during the pandemic just decided to stop drinking. I've never had a problem with alcohol, but it was the only thing that gave me hot flashes and my sleep is far too important. That's kind of what that's been my my, uh, assessment of that. But how many people are in this like toxic mommy drinking culture where women are drinking a lot of alcohol during the week, they're drinking a lot on the weekends. And, you know, I had Dr. Lara Bryden on this summer and she was talking about how it impairs blood sugar regulation, impairs estrogen detoxification and impairs, you know, sleep quality. It impacts your risk for breast cancer. So really examining your relationship with alcohol and there's no judgment. It's just, you know, really just thinking like, If I'm drinking two to three glasses of wine, four or five nights a week, that can add up and understanding that our body processes alcohol first in the body, as opposed to the rest of the food that we've consumed. So I find that those are usually the low lying fruit piece that I'll kind of pull from. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I feel like a lot of those people 
put aside because they're so focused on, well, what am I eating? What am I eating? And they forget like, no, you actually still need to sleep and you need to reduce your stress. And you need, I just shared something on my Instagram about the toxic wine culture among moms. And it is, it's so true. Like that's one of those things where we need to keep talking about it because that's one of those things that we may participate in sometimes. And I love that you've given up alcohol. Yeah. I, I don't drink either. And I I feel great with it sleep and stress wise, but yeah, those are all spot on. And ultimately those are like the foundations, right? And sometimes they get lost in the sauce because people are so focused on, you know, all these newer strategies and these more sexy strategies. And it's like, no, but remember, you know, sleep is huge. And so I think that's good. Yeah, absolutely. Getting back to basics. And last but not least, what is your philosophy about the scale? Oh man. Yeah. The scale. (laughs) It's one of those things that you like love, but you also hate because it can give you so it can absolutely help people stay motivated. Like that is one of the things that people cling to when it comes to motivation. And it's one of those things that yes, it can be helpful, but when you have a complicated case or you have someone that's maybe losing more visceral fat and putting on muscle and the scales kind of staying the same, it's, it can, people get so discouraged by the scale. And it's like, so I do, I spend a lot of time counseling clients, like, look, you need to have more than one measurement of success. And sometimes the measurement of success doesn't even need to be a number. It needs to be, you know, how my clothes are fitting. Do you feel good sitting down? Do you, you know, are your joints achy? And so I like to have my clients start off in the very beginning when they work with me is come up with like five different ways you want to measure success that isn't necessarily hyper-focused on the scale. I'm not saying throw it out, but I am saying that you can't use that as your only level of I'm doing a good job and success to fail rate. And so again, I love tape measurements. I love lab values. I love the way people feel. I love Do they have a libido? Do they have energy? Do they, you know, does the skin look good? Do they feel confident in their mood? And so I think all of those are great measurements to use when you're working with the client and great measurements to understand is my nutrition plan working, which is why I love keto and carnivore so much because it improves all of those things and people typically start feeling great. But yeah, the scale is one of those where I think it can be useful in some situations. I think it can be very damaging in others. And so you have to be really careful with the individual. Um, how often are they weighing? Are they weighing daily? Do they understand that women's hormones can cause weight fluctuations daily? And so those are the types of things I like to make sure people know, especially if I suspect or get some inclination that they hold on to the scale like gold. Yeah, I think the reframe is really important. And and I think those different ways to measure success is really invaluable. And I agree with you wholeheartedly, getting a sense for whether or not someone has a healthy relationship with the scale versus an unhealthy relationship with the scale. I've I've gotten DMs from women saying, my weight fluctuates by three to five pounds every couple of days. I'm like, that is completely normal. It is completely normal. And depending where you are in your menstrual cycle or how many carbohydrates you've consumed or how much alcohol you've consumed, it can absolutely impact that. Well, I could obviously talk to you for hours. It's been a wonderful conversation. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you. You absolutely want to follow Temple on Instagram. It's one of my favorite people to follow because her reels are always outstanding. And I'm just now getting on TikTok. So I'll have to follow you there as well. Yeah, same with TikTok, but your reels are fantastic too. But you guys can find me. I'm at the.ketogenic.com 
dot nutritionist on all the platforms. I'm on TikTok. Instagram is my biggest one. I just got on Twitter recently. That's a fun place too. And my podcast is very, it's in the, the beginning stages, but I'm on Spotify and Apple podcasts as well there. So I love a follow and I'm really, truly honored that you asked me to be on your podcast and this is fun. Of course. I loved our conversation. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 